backgrounds that some of you came skipping through the front door this morning because life is just freaking awesome. And others of you dragged your way in because you have battled with your kids over the last hour and you're literally dragging them in. We will go to church. You will be happy. You know, I've been there. We've got four kids. And so there's all this, all this different kind of tension in the room. And yet what amazes me about church, and this is just, you've got to understand, this isn't church. This is just a gathering, a larger gathering of people. Church happens every day through the week. That I, uh, that I really want to make sure that for as long as I speak, that, that you are actually reminded of some important issues and some important truths. That when you leave this place, that you have a fresh, new recognition of who it is that we serve. And, and if you're just still on a journey and you're trying to figure out this whole Christianity thing and you don't, you don't even know whether you believe in God yet, that I still want you to have something of what I say resonate in your heart so that when you leave, you kind of, I want you to stay awake at night. I've got to be honest. I've got to go, man, that British guy, I, I didn't understand half of his crazy sayings, but there was just something about what he was saying. Because at the end of the day, if you actually become consciously aware of it, you know who it is that you talk to most in your life. The person that you speak to most in your life is you. You have the longest, loudest, sometimes most angry, bitter, negative conversation with yourself. Like, just think about it. If you actually think about the amount of words that you say to yourself every day and, and then what the tone of those words are, I think you actually would have a little shock. You wouldn't want to be friends with you, I don't think. Like, you wouldn't talk to you ever again if, if you, this is getting confusing, if somebody that, you know what I'm saying? Like, if somebody actually was as negative and bitter and angry and frustrated in your world, you would want to avoid them because of the conversation they're having with you actually pulls you down. But if you actually think about it, that is often the case with us. We are our own worst critic, constantly reminding ourselves of all the bad stuff that's happened and stuff we've done and what people have said to you. And maybe you just had the worst upbringing that you were literally dragged up by somebody or some people who didn't really love you and didn't care about you, constantly reminded you of that. Or maybe you just had this perfect, beautiful daisies on the meadow, skipping through the teenage years, kind of, oh, it's oh, so amazing kind of upbringing. Maybe you had one of those, and yet still we get plagued with thoughts that really just don't do us any good. We value, listen to this, we value our own opinion about ourselves way too much. We listen to ourselves way too much. And what my prayer is, is this morning as we come to the scriptures is that we're not concentrating on man alive. How long has he been preaching? You know, I, I need to get out of here. But we're actually hearing what it is that God thinks about you. Because really, who gives a rip what I think about you or what you think about you? Because ultimately, if we believe in the God of the Bible, then surely what he thinks about us is the most important thing. And so we get this opportunity this morning to value God's word above our own word, God's opinion over our own opinion, and maybe just, and I say this lovingly and pastorally and kindly, we just need to tell ourselves to shut up just for a while and listen to what he has to say. 
In fact, David does this all the way through Psalms. If you read Psalm 103, just, just the first couple of verses, I love, and this is, this is reflective all through the Psalms. As we're going through our series in the Psalms, we're not going to camp out on this verse, but I just want you to see how David speaks to himself. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So he's like, okay, listen up, David. You need to remember some stuff. You need to listen up. You need to stop talking to yourself. You need to remember God's benefits. And then he goes on, who forgives all your iniquity, all your sins. He heals all your diseases. He redeems. He brings up your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like that of the eagles? He's like, okay, listen up. Quieten down. Life may be difficult. He is surrounded by his enemies. He is constantly reminded of how much danger he's in, what a sinner he is. And he's like, okay, stop. Just stop. Whoa, 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 whoa. What does God think about me? What does God think about me? So let's just look at just three things that I've been really, really praying through and thinking about over the last few weeks, and it's in Ephesians. And uh, if you have a Bible, uh, then please turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the baskets around. You can uh, grab one of those, take them home. And if you want a really fancy Bible, we've got lots in Lost and Found. Just take them. Um, or you can go on your mobile device. Psalm, uh, Ephesians 1 verse 15. So remember that the frame that we're saying is, what is it that God wants us to know about us? And so Paul says this. This is the Apostle Paul. Paul was a highly educated, brilliant scholar. He was, he was probably genius. He would have learnt most, if not all, of the Old Testament. So you, you think your Bible memory verses from when you were in kids' church was tough. Like, he would have known the whole of the Old Testament. He persecuted Christians for a large part of the first part of his life. He was a brilliant, brilliant leader. He killed Christians, and then God got hold of him, threw him off his horse, and between the top of his horse and the soil, converted him. And he became a Christian. And then he's doing this writing, and he's this church planter, a pastor, and he's, like, he's saying this, number, verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints. Okay, so let's stop. He's saying, look, I'm recognizing that you have faith in Jesus. That's wonderful. I, I also recognize that you love each other. That also is wonderful. Then he carries on, verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So he's saying this. Look, I know you're a Christian. I know you have love for one another, but you're lacking something. I'm going to pray for you. My number one priority for you is to know some things. Because your faith is not enough. Your love for each other is not enough. You need to know what God's thoughts are towards you. Like if I said to you, like think about the last scene of the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark for a second, right? Like God turns up in all his glory without the face melting. But God turns up with, in all his glory and he actually says, okay, Glenn, I need you to know three things. I don't know we'd be going, oh really? Uh, well, can we be quick? Because... You know, I've got stuff to do. Like, like, I'd want to lean in. I'd like, okay, God, what is it you want me to know? 
And this is what Paul is presenting here. He's saying, look, I want you to know something. Now, he uses two interesting words here. Or three, really. I do not cease. I do not cease. See, that tells me that Paul is prioritizing this. This is his highest number one priority. I'm praying for you. Now, I, as your pastor, and there's, there's a chunk of people still on vacation, but I want this recorded and I'm sincerely standing in front of you and saying this. And some of you have actually said this one-on-one to over coffee. I need to confess that I have not prayed enough over you as a church. I read this verse, and then I also read chapter 3, and verse 14. It says, I bow my knees before the Father. That as a pastor, my number one priority is to pray for you. Because I think that if I do that, then everything else takes care of itself. That I think that what you need in a pastor more than anything is to know that that guy up on the stage is praying for you unceasingly. Not angry at you, frustrated at you. And, and can, I be, can I be honest? There have been times that I have got frustrated and annoyed and some of you have had the privilege of had that spit and anger directed at them, not because it was them, but because of frustration and if I'm really honest, my root of my frustration is often in God, not in the person. And you might go, wow, you're, you're a terrible person. I'd go, you're right. You're right, which is why I'm so grateful that Jesus still loves me, even if you don't. But I, I do need to confess, I don't pray enough for you. And Paul's priority, more than anything else, is to pray for this group of people. And he remembers them. Remembering you in my prayers, verse 17. What is it that he's praying for? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Can I just have the water, please, Lord? That may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. You see, what, I'm, what Paul is asking for, what I'm praying for, because I've prayed this passage over us as a church and over many of you as individuals this week, I have prayed that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. This is not something you gain in and of your own power. This is a gift. This is a miracle that we this morning would actually have a miracle happen in your hearts and in your minds that God would give you, by His grace, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. This is not something you can grab hold of and get yourself. This is from God to you, which is why Paul is praying. So Paul, in all his genius, in all his apostolic gifting and in his miracles and everything else, still, it says in chapter 3, I bow my knees because this is only something God can do. This is not something Paul can do. This is not something Glenn can do. It doesn't matter how good a preacher I am. I can prepare a good sermon. It's God that creates a miracle and a great sermon. That God would create something in your heart that actually would radically change the way you see life. That's a gift. It's a miracle. And this word knowledge. Okay, we're going to get a little intimate for just for a second. So this is not something you would normally talk about in lots of churches. We do in this church because it's such a big part of our culture. But this word knowledge is not just knowing. What it actually literally means is an intimate experience 
of him. So in the Old Testament, many times it would, they, they would frame marriage and, and sex around this idea of knowing somebody. You've probably read it in the Old Testament that a man would know his wife. Know is code word for have sex with. Because it's the most intimate experience a man and a woman can have. That's why sex, the word sex in the Old Testament is the word Hebrew word dode, which means mingling of the souls. So what we've got here is Paul praying that you would have the miracle, the gift of knowing God so intimately that your souls are mixing. You would have intimate experience. So let's just stop. There's a big difference about from reading about sex to experiencing sex. Amen? Maybe. Absolutely. Sorry for those of you who are single and not, don't know what I'm talking about yet. But there's a big difference. And you can talk all you want about knowing God and knowing the Bible and knowing what you should do and knowing the mission and knowing this and knowing that. In fact, you're so knowledgeable, you're able to critically analyze other people's experiences of God, but you don't actually intimately know God. That's Paul's prayer. His number one priority is that you would know him. That the spirit of God in you, that you would have a revelation of the knowledge of him. Who? Jesus. You would have a knowledge of him. Because in verse 18, it says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So we've got Paul praying, and he's saying, this is what I'm praying for. I'm praying for a miracle. I'm praying that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and and revelation of the knowledge of him. So you would actually have this incredible experience, Christians, happen in your life. So this is not non-Christians. This is Christians that you would be understanding of something. And this intimate understanding that Paul is praying for is that you would know him. Where? Verse 18, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, the heart, your core. The, some, some translators call this the, uh, the, the desire producer. The, the center of who you are, the center of who Glenn is, the center of who John is, the center of who Peter is, or, or Brad, or Colleen, or, or Marion. The center of you, the, the, what makes you you. Where you make all your decisions from, where you get excited about, what it is that you are focusing on, that that would be consumed with an intimate knowledge of Christ. That the eyes of your heart, the way that you see life, would be dictated to and controlled and beautified by your understanding and knowledge, intimate experience of Jesus Christ. Oh God, give us that. And he says, and if you have this, verse 18, that you may know, there's that word again, what is the hope to which he has called you? That you would know what is the hope. He has three asks. He's asking for this revelation. He's asking for this intimate knowledge in the very center of who you are. Not just some periphery journaled every now and again, I wish I could get, but actually inside the core of who you are, the real you, Not the projected you, but the real you would have three things. Number one, that you would know the hope to which you are called. The hope to which you are called. I think he puts this first for a reason. 
Because we live in a hopeless world. We live in a world that is brilliant at pretending they're not hopeless, but they're hopeless. doesn't matter how much money or what car or how good-looking or how fit or how well-careered or educated. There's this sense of emptiness and hopelessness that just envelopes society. And with children, we're like, you, you have this whole world in front of you. And then by the time they get to teenagers and young adults and certainly into marriage, this hopelessness just increases and the hope for, for what real life could be diminishes and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And you're going, wow, this is really negative. And, but it's true. If you're actually in any kind of job that comes into contact with people when everything is stripped away... It doesn't matter how fit or how good-looking or how rich they are. There's this overriding sense of emptiness in the life of that person. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we know that's the truth. And so what Paul is saying is you, Christians, have a hope. You've been called. Then in Ephesus chapter 1, it says this. Before the found, uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Before the foundation of the world... You were chosen. That God chose you. He called you. That if we could just grasp the magnitude of God Almighty thinking about you. That he called you through his son Jesus. That Jesus would die on the cross. So that your sin and your shame and and your stink in life would actually not stink in life, not stinking life, although that works too, would actually die with him and you'd get this newness of life. And he says, look, you have a new hope. You know where you're going. Do you remember when you were a kid, I just think about Alton Towers in Britain, and for those of you who are British will know what I mean, but Alton Towers was this theme park. If you told like a 13 or 12-year-old kid, you're going to Six Flags or Disney or Alton Towers, you'd be like, when are we going? How far is it? Are we there yet? We've been driving five minutes. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I just want to get there. I just want to get there. That, friends, is how we should be living with this hope in us. That it doesn't matter what happens on, around you or in you or those people uh, in your job. You're like, man, are, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Is that your experience? That when people come into contact with you, they leave going, man, that, that's, that was really odd. They just have this hope. And I've seen the car he drives. It sucks. And he's struggling with this ailment. And man, he doesn't seem to have everything that everyone else is striving for. But they have this hope that you've been called. If you don't know Jesus this morning, that is the hope. That is, the, that is, that is what is on offer. That you can live life with this hope. Look at... Look at this, this scripture in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 to 10. I think we have it on the screen, I, I hope. Maybe not. I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Write it down if you're uh, journaling. Or, oh, by the way, my notes, these actual notes, are on, uh, on my Twitter feed at Willow Park Church, WPC South. You can find these actual notes on Twitter. So you can follow along. I should have told you that at the beginning. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. Listen to this. 
But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Let me say again, because some of you aren't listening, I can tell. What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So he's like, look, you, have got no, you can't even imagine it. Just try, he said, because you can't even get there as to how amazing it is, those things that God has prepared for those who love God. But then he says in verse 10, but that comes with revelation. So my prayer for you this week and this morning is that God would reveal to you some of what he has prepared for you in the future. Because if you can look forward to something in the future, you can endure anything today. Knowing that as for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I'm not just talking about in death. I'm talking about every day experience with God that you can wake up and it's like your eyes flick open and it's like, yes. Bring it on, because I've got a hope that transcends everything that can happen to me in my life. And some of you are going, man, that, that seems, he's, he's really on fire this morning. He's obviously had lots of coffees. For those of you who come regularly, this is not unusual. But this isn't like Premier League Christianity. This isn't uh, NBA Christianity. And you're feeling like you're in first division under 12s. This isn't like something that is only reserved for those who are a bit nutty and a a little bit excessive. This is everybody. He's praying for the whole Ephesian church, which, by the way, some historians would say is over 250,000 people in Ephesus. And uh, pastored by a young man called Timothy. Young guy in his early 20s. This is for everybody. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I want you to know the hope, the buoyancy should be. Let me just say this. If we lived like that, would this dark and hopeless world take note? Absolutely. Number two, same verse. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints? Don't skip over that. There's something really strange about that verse. Let's read it again. What are the riches of whose glorious inheritance? His. Not yours. See, Paul's been talking about what you get in the beginning part of chapter 1, so feel free to read that later. But he's saying, what are the riches of his inheritance in you, if you believe in Jesus this morning? That's a bit of a strange thing for him to say. What he's saying is this. God's inheritance is in you. In you. In Terry. In Hannah. It, like, God looks at you and sees his inheritance. Now, I've never had an inheritance. Um, I'm not even setting my sights on getting one and potentially giving one. Sorry, Luke and Zoe. And <laughs> I'm going to be well spent by the time I get there. But God looks at at you and he goes, I have something invested in you. That he looks at you and and it's wanted. 
He has a joy in you. The scripture even talks about liking you. We can wrap our head around God loving us, but he likes you. He sings songs over you. It says in Hebrews that he endured the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him. Who was, what was the joy? You. That as you become a Christian, as you submit your life to Christ, as his life floods into you, as you confess your sin before him, his life floods in, and that brings him joy because his inheritance is in you. Can I say to those of you who were brought up in an environment where you were dismissed and disliked and not wanted and not cared for, you were constantly reminded you were an accident, that you just, that maybe you dad walked out on you or you never experienced having a dad or never experienced having a mom. It was just this constant reminder you are nothing. God floods into your life, slams into your soul and tells you, you are my inheritance now. You're wanted. You are thought about. I chose you. You are loved. That's hard for me. As a, as, as a guy, that's hard for me. But Paul is saying, I want you to know this. These are the thoughts that God has for you, that you are wanted. You need to believe his words and his opinion more than your words and your opinion that you speak of yourself. Just imagine what it would be like this week if you went into the week and you read through this scripture and you prayed this over yourself. Lord, today I pray that I would just live out this hope that, and out in front of a hopeless world that I would remember how well loved I am by God Almighty. We would believe this. And then verse 19, number three. If you thought this was good so far, then this is incredible. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? So if you've got your scriptures in front of you, get a highlighter and highlight hope. You should highlight inheritance and you should highlight power. Paul's praying that you would have hope, you would remember that God wants you, you are his inheritance, and that you are filled with power. Not any old power, his power, not any old his power, immeasurable power. That it is towards you. So think about that. Have you, like in Britain... One of the things that is just norm and that people get quite excited about in Kelowna is, is, is wind. And what I mean by it is like this. An average day in the city that Sarah and I used to live in was the wind coming down the coast at 50 or 60 miles an hour, not kilometers an hour. That would be an average day. You'd stick your head out and go, biking day, let's go. Because the wind isn't so much. And you, you can go and you could stand on the front uh, by the sea and for those of you who've been around a while, I know this sounds really nice, and I won't go into the detail, but it's really not. It's real, real, where, you, where we used to live. It's just a dreadful place. But anyway, you could stand at the front, and the sea and the wind would, would just, sometimes you'd be like literally leaning into it. And then, when you were a kid, and I was a teacher, so on Top Yard, where I used to do duty, some of the kids, and I used to do it as well, when it was really windy, it would just scream across the Top Yard where they would play. So they'd get their jackets, and they'd pull it over their heads like this. So then they've got a sail. I'm not even kidding. Kids would just fly around, like just sailing around in the wind. So why am I telling you all this nonsense? His power towards you who believe that when you go into a situation 
The promise of the scripture says that there's power in you, but there's power towards you as well. That it's like this sail. You can just catch the wind of it. Immeasurable power. We know it's immeasurable because in verse 20, he goes on to explain that it's the same power that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So as Christians, we can go into our workplaces, we can go into our families and our neighborhoods and our our gyms and our coffee shops and everything else, and we can go in knowing that we have hope, that we are loved and cared for, that we are his inheritance, that we are wanted and we are liked. And that we have power, his power, to do incredible things in life. When did we, as Christians, forget who it is that called us, gives us hope, and gives us power? When did we forget that? When did Christianity become an hour and four minutes on a Sunday morning? When did church become coming and sitting and going until next week? Because I read the scriptures and what I see is something so remarkably different than that. What I see is a group of people in Acts chapter 1 all the way through the first early church who seem to understand the hope How do I know they understood the hope? Because these people were dreadfully tortured, skinned alive, eyes gouged out, limbs ripped off. Going through to the Middle Ages, you, you would know who it was who was a Christian, who professed Christ, because they wouldn't kill you. They'd want to make sure that they took something away from you. And it was usually some part of your body, your tongue, anything. So you knew who was a Christian because they had the mark of Christianity upon them. That every one of the apostles died a horrible death. Peter hung upside down because he felt himself unworthy to be hung the right way up. Why am I sharing all this? Because there's people that have gone before us who have had this revelation of the hope that they have in the future that they can endure anything in the present. Do you think that these people would go through all that knowing that what they saw was a lie? I pray that God would just give us an ounce of that same hope because this city would be turned upside down. And I don't need 250. God only needs one or two. But it starts with the spirit of revelation, this unsettling, the inspirational dissatisfaction, this sense that, God, there's something more. And let me just warn you, when that starts happening in you, and I'm believing and praying it will, that you believe that there's something more, please resist the criticism that Satan will often try and get us to do. There's something more. Yeah, the church should be doing this, that, and the other. Let's just take church out of it. There's something more. Yeah, who does Paul pray for? For you and me. Not the church established, but actually the individual church, the people in Ephesus that they would get a revelation of their hope and their calling and their inheritance and their power that they as individuals would go out and be on mission used by God in a way that radically changed society forever. That we would look at ourselves between us and God and say, Lord, what is it that you would want me to do? 
So where does this all start as I bring this to a conclusion? In verse 17, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of, of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So the hope, the inheritance, the power, the life-changing power, the mission, the alignment of priorities, the change of heart, that we would look at life through the lens that Christ has given us rather than this lens of trying to get and that we'd actually, where does all this start? In the knowledge of him. See, in Acts 13, uh, sorry, John 13 through to John 17, Jesus regularly talks about abiding in him. See, he never left the disciples of church methodology. He says, you know, if you do your kids' service like this and you do your music like that, and, you know, Jesus never said you should do church this way or do church that way. What he said this, he gave an instruction and he said, abide in me. Just seek me. And that wisdom and revelation and hope and inheritance and power will emerge. And I'm telling you, it doesn't take a long time. A few minutes of just quietening ourselves before him, quietly asking him to give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation. Often that leads to confessing some stuff that we know was sinful. And his promise is sure. How do I know that this is true for you and me as it is as much to them? Because Paul prayed. This is the Apostle Paul who had an incredible faith. He prayed in faith believing that this was God's will. So I know this is God's will for you and me. And then I just wonder what our city would look like. What would our church look like? Let's make it more intimate. What would your family look like if, uh, as for you and your house, you sought after him? Surely it would be the most loving thing you could do for your children would be to pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The most impactful thing you can do for your street would be to pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. The most changing thing you could do for your community or workplace or coffee shop or pub or whatever it is, wherever you hang out, would be to pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him more than anything else we can do. So here's what I'd like you to do with me. Can we start now? Can we, can we just spend a few minutes just quieting ourselves before him and praying and asking Maybe, maybe if you feel comfortable, you might want to kneel, you can stand, you can sit. I, honestly, I don't, I don't think God's got a flip chart. And, oh, he kneeled. Okay, well, that's good. But what authenticity and not wondering what everyone else is doing? Let's pray. Let's pray that, that God would impact us. Because here's what will happen. Life will change for you if you do that priorities will change. Suddenly that which you thought was the most important gets replaced by the thing that is actually the most important. 
And so it's a beautiful, powerful, life-changing prayer to pray. And if you don't know Jesus, you can, you can join us in this prayer. And, and as we're faced with the root of this prayer, which is the cross and Jesus dying on the cross, as I've already shared, you'll be reminded of how far you are from God and you ask and confess the sin that separates you from God and the promise is that he will change your life and give you that hope. Let's pray. Father, we, we bow before you with expectation in our heart. That, Lord, I don't know all the different circumstances and experiences and the week that people have had in this room, but, Lord, what I do know for sure is every one of us needs you and needs more of you. So God, I I bow before you, maybe in some way standing in the gap, praying on behalf of, asking you, Lord, that you would forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for prioritizing other things. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking that we are in control, that, that our destiny is down to our own hard work by replacing you with those things that you have created rather than worshiping you as creator. Father, I pray as a church, as a family, as those called by you, that Lord, that I pray, God, that, that life would not be the same after we finish praying this morning. Lord, I'm praying for a miracle. Lord, we would just stop chasing after the nonsense and get over our own bitterness and criticisms. And that, Lord, that we would stop speaking negativity to ourselves. That, Lord, we would fill our minds with you and your word and what you think. God, we wouldn't come with a long list of requirements that we need in order to feel happy. But, Lord, that we would just come and present ourselves Submit. God, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That you would awaken the hope. Wake us up, Lord. Because God, I really believe that this valley that we live in truly is a valley of dry bones. Desperately needs you, Lord. We need you. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus, that you would choose me, all my stuff, 
and he loved me and died for me so that I would not have to take the punishment for the sin that I willingly committed. So Lord, I pray that as we go into the fall as a church family, that Lord, we'd be willing to do whatever you call us to do. Father, I pray that you would help us, remind us, Lord, of our priorities. That, God, we would become a community of missionaries called by you, empowered by you. Lord, I pray you would start it in our hearts this morning. That we would seek you. Praise your name, Lord Jesus. Praise your name, Lord Jesus.